Well, if you look at your outline, <clears throat> see the title there, Worldly Lies That Christians Believe. Uh, we could have gone back and listed a number of uh, lies that we as Christians unfortunately fall for. Uh, and there are so many, and the majority of these lies actually have been lies that we have seen since uh, the establishment of the church. And so these are not new, but as I went through, I listed a number of the, the things that I think many of us have struggled with or know people who have struggled with. I'm going to start off with John 8.44 as we set a precedent here. In John 8.44, and Jesus is dealing with a very obstinate crowd. He says, Ye are of your father the devil... And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Well, I started off with that because certainly as Christians, we are bombarded with, with Satan's lies on a daily basis. Uh, and we will even find, as we begin to look through some of these, that oftentimes we actually will even lie to ourselves. And so lying is unfortunately part of today's culture. Uh, it was a problem in the first century, but I went back and looked up the statistics. I think you guys will be a little saddened by this, maybe shocked. Uh, there was a recent study that actually says that the average person lies three or four times per day. It says that in marital relationships, we as spouses actually lie to each other 10% or 10 times per day. And maybe this one I get, couples who are dating actually will lie to each other 20% of the time. So uh, actually it was percent. So 10% of the time spouses lie to each other. Those who are dating, because he's trying to catch a spouse, they lie to themselves, they lie to each other 20% of the time. Uh, and so... When you go back and begin to look at studies, it, it's amazing to me the extent to which people will lie to other people, sometimes even themselves. Now, I actually went back and, and spent a little bit of time looking at this, too. Do you guys know there are actually books where you can go buy? I've actually watched a few of the videos on YouTube. But you can watch YouTube videos or you can go buy books which will tell you how you can watch somebody's body language to see if they are lying to you. And you could spend time doing that. It might be a whole lot easier if we'd each just grab a hold of our Bible, begin to study God's Word, and, and really just apply it in a very straightforward command. Colossians 3.9 says, Lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Lying has been a problem amongst Christians. It's been a problem of those who are not yet Christians. And there are many lies that have evolved from all of that, and many of those are lies that we as Christians have fallen for or believe. Let me point out again, we are in a spiritual war against Satan. Yes, Jesus did defeat, defeat Satan on the cross. However, it's also true that uh, Satan never ceases his attack on us. Remember, he, he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so that includes God's people. And so there's a number of lies that we could fall for. Many of us have. Some of us may even currently. Let me go back and begin to list a few of these. One of the lies that Christians believe, and even those who are not yet Christians, is that God withholds good things from Christians. Let me go back to Genesis 3, 4 through 5. And remember I told you many of these lies that we see, we see them from the very beginning of time or from um, the establishment even of the church. But notice in Genesis 3, starting in verse 4, 
And the serpent said, now I'm going to go back and remind you in John 8, 44, Jesus says he's the father of lies. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in that day ye eat thereof. Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Satan here is tempting Eve by trying to make her think that God is withholding good things from, um, from her and her husband. And that's what Satan wants us to believe. He wants us to believe that, that God being a deity and His goodness requires Him to satisfy and bless us. Oftentimes we want that immediately. And then when that doesn't happen, Satan wants us to believe that that's a sign that God doesn't care about us. And I actually heard a guy one time, uh, if you remember, the, there was actually a movie. Um, I won't give the name of it, but he, he basically said God was, a, was an absentee landlord. He began the, the world spinning, and he doesn't love man at all. In no way does he love man, and he doesn't, he doesn't give good things to man. There are a lot of people that actually think that. Um, God's plans were never for just the immediate... Um, giving of whatever it is that we want. They were always for uh, the long haul and for us to do well on a long scale schedule, right? That's the idea of Christianity and being faithful or remaining faithful to the, to the gospel. There are some people who think, though, that true Christianity takes all of the fun and excitement out of life. They believe that God withholds things from us, and I I even go back, and I, I think I read some of that really in what we were talking about before Bible study in the, in the words given by, a, uh, by an erring Christian. In essence, he almost made it sound like God withholds good things from us. Well, without going into a lot of detail, oftentimes the good things or the fun that these people are talking about aren't actually good things at all. They're sinful things uh, that the Bible actually says is going to cause problems in our life or make us an unfaithful uh, follower of God. You'll also find people who believe this idea of God withholds things from us. These are always oftentimes the same people who they want to do those things which they ought not to do. They think God's preventing them from doing it. And then when they find themselves in a situation because of uh, doing what they wanted to do, they sit and bargain with God, basically stating, you know, if, you'll, if you get me out of this situation, I won't do it again. Uh, or they want to get out of the consequences of what it is that they've done. Satan wants you to go back and think, God is denying you from blessings, God is keeping good things from you, but when in reality you go back and begin to study the Scriptures, God has told us exactly how it is that we ought to live in order so that we can be spiritually blessed. But when you break it down, those who believe this, God withholds good things from us, it is oftentimes, and I don't know any example where this is not the case, they want to do something sinful, and because they can't, they've come to the belief, God, God just keeps me from being able to, to have good things or to have fun or to do it in the way that I want. The truth of the matter is, is God doesn't withhold good things from His faithful followers. Another lie that we've seen quite often, and this has been true throughout the Old Testament, it's been true throughout the establishment of the church, starting in the New Testament, there are an awful lot of people who have tried to solely just trust in themselves. And what I mean is, is they've in essence moved God out of the process. Listen to Psalms 20, verse 7. The psalmist writes, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Now let me pause for a minute. If that doesn't make sense to you, back at that time for warfare, 
Horses and chariots were the tanks of the day. And so if you had an army come forward and they just had a bunch of soldiers and you had horses and chariots, in essence, it was like your tanks coming in to roll over their army, right? He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Well, here's the point. There were many people who believed in themselves or believed in their abilities. Uh, but the psalmist here says, you know what, we're going to rely on God and His will. And I'm going to point out an example where um, a follower of God was not doing that. But here the psalmist says that's what we're going to do. This, Satan always provides plenty of alternatives for us as, his follow, uh, for us as God's followers to choose in place of choosing God. And there could be a lot of those. Humanism, materialism, secularism, our personal opinions as opposed to the Scriptures, sinful, lustful behavior as opposed to what the Bible teaches, um, possessions in and of themselves, unbiblical or uh, unbiblical religious beliefs, unbiblical religious organizations that didn't originate from God, that are not found in the Scriptures, and the list would go on and on and on. All of these things being devised of by men, okay? Now again, oftentimes we place value in our own ideas as opposed to God's. Oftentimes it's seen in placing our faith in numbers. That's why oftentimes I think so many polls are done. People will do polls to see what, how many people believe this and or believe that. Well, sometimes the numbers actually are deceiving. Uh, and again, Satan would rather us to trust in quantity versus God's provision. And here's an example over in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Here you have the example of David. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, I'm not going to go back and spend a lot of time on 1 Chronicles, but you'll find that there's actually um, the nation of Israel having multiple battles. Okay, uh, And it's interesting that David shouldn't have, had, have ever been worried how many people these other armies actually had. God had repeatedly blessed Israel when they were very few in number. He would continue to bless faithful Israel if they were few in number. But as a, as a side note, I want to point something out here. At this time where you find David is provoked to go out and to number Israel, if you go back and actually look at the corresponding passage in Samuel that ties into the same time frame as this. When David was here at this point and spiritually weak and went out to number Israel, you will actually find that this is about the exact same time that David, uh, that Samuel points out that David had uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, where he had actually murdered uh, Uriah the Hittite, one of his faithful soldiers. And my whole point in pointing all this out is that oftentimes God's people need to worry about beginning to think worldly. In context here, he's thinking worldly about our number versus their numbers. He's not thinking our God against them. And not only is he thinking worldly as it comes to physical armies, he was thinking very worldly when we see that he committed adultery with Bathsheba at this same time, and also in trying to resolve the problem by having somebody killed. So, you know, oftentimes, yes, uh, we think that maybe God is withholding things from us, and we might think that we can trust to do our own will. We learn here very, very quickly that David, um, David, he wasn't directing his own steps very well. 
Now consider the lie of self-reliance. Satan wants us to fall victim to the lie that we pretty much can do it all to ourselves and, or do it all by ourselves. We can accomplish all things by ourselves. Listen to Philippians 4.19. Paul says, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now again, he's talking about those faithful followers of God. And he's pointing out you need to be God-reliant, not self-reliant. I think most of us understand, although some may forget, that we can't save ourselves and we can't control the majority of things that actually take place within our life. And for anybody who is here, when I talk about solely trusting in your own will or your own ability, let me just say this, and I've said this before, control in this life is an illusion. Uh, and I don't think anything really ever got my eyes that open. Uh, I've seen some things that, you know, have happened obviously to family members or so forth. But I think when I flipped my car last year, that really opened my eyes to the fact that control in life at all is an illusion. And so the idea that I can do it all by myself, I can take care of myself, uh, that's not the truth of the matter. I'm not suggesting that we can't be successful. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't plan and work towards goals and security. What I am saying is, is I can't measure my success or even my blessings simply on my own abilities, apart from God. Listen to Jeremiah 10:23. I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Man has never had it in himself to do it all by himself. And you can go back and look at David, for example, who had made a number of problems uh, for himself within his life. And you can look at a number of other examples that we have within the Scriptures. I think what we need to understand as a whole here, when we think about trusting in our own will and doing things all by ourselves, when we get to thinking like that, we have a serious problem. When things are great, we should, we should be thankful and continue to rely on God. When things are bad, we should continue to be thankful for what we have, uh, praying about those things that we're struggling with, and yet continuing to uh, be thankful and, and uh, work through these struggles as we try to improve our situation. But again, I can't, I can't solely trust in myself to, one, make correct decisions, or two, to, to accomplish everything in my life. And yet, if you look at the society around us, that is the general consensus. Matter of fact, it's the main, the, the main essence of humanism. That man can simply do it all by himself. Well, that's, that's not true. It's simply not. Here's another lie people fall for. God's people will never suffer. Unfortunately, I find some name-it-and-claim-it preachers teach this type of stuff. <clears throat> I'm going to go back to the account here where Jesus is actually teaching His disciples, He's prophesying about the fact that He's going to suffer. Listen to Matthew 16, 22 through 23. Then Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, that this shall not be unto thee. But He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Men in general do not want to suffer, and we don't want to think that we as followers of God would suffer. If Jesus suffered, what would make you think that you're not going to? As a matter of fact, there are plenty of verses that say because you're a follower of God, you will suffer. And yet, Satan wants us to believe that nothing bad would ever happen to us because we are followers of God. Listen to Luke 17.1. 
Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. There are an awful lot of people who are Christians or become Christians, and they think once I become a Christian, everything's going to be great. Right? Everything will be great, and I'm not going to struggle. I'm going to be honest with you. The very second you become a Christian and you begin to try to live according to the Scriptures, it's going to be a hundred times harder than it ever was when you weren't a Christian. When you're not a Christian, you can do whatever you want. But when you become a Christian, you're going to deal with offenses. He says those offenses will come. That word offense could actually be translated as stumbling block or snare. Right? There are going to be temptations. There are going to be snares. There will be stumbling blocks. They oftentimes will take the form of some type of, of suffering. And this isn't because God is evil. It's not because God wants us to sin or to fall. That is the result of living in this oftentimes evil world who is not concerned with spiritual things. Because of that, oftentimes we will suffer. Now, the world wants us to believe uh, that if something bad does happen, or if we don't receive blessings immediately, it's just a further indication that either God does not exist or He's not all that we think He is. Uh, and Satan wants us to believe that too. Satan's lies can cause us to, when these types of things happen, feel bad for ourselves, have self-pity. Oftentimes that turns into bitterness. Uh, and then when we begin to think like this, really the only way you might be able to come out of it is to take yourself and go back and read the book of Job. And I'm not sure what anybody here is struggling with. Many of us throughout this year, I know, have struggled with different things. We have struggled with problems within maybe our uh, relationships, with family members, with jobs. And as we begin, and I'm going to admit to you guys, I'll admit it from the pulpit today, I have been bitter about some of the things I have had to deal with throughout this year. My wife is the one that has to come back and try to get me set straight and say, okay, and she lists them. Think about this, and think about this, and think about this. She takes me back. Here's what I need to do. One, I need to listen to her. But two, go back and look at Job. Go back and look at Job. And you think about how bad Job had it. You think about all the things that happened to Job. In Job 1.22, it says, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job had no idea why he was going through what he was going through. Here he is, a faithful follower of God, who is dealing with all of this in his life, and he is wondering, why am I suffering? His friends are telling me it's because he's a rank, he's a rank heretic sinner, basically. And Job never could figure this out. How many of you guys have ever thought to yourself, if you're going to be honest, I'm trying the best I can to be a faithful follower of God, and I am wondering why in the world I am suffering in the way that I am. Well, go back to the previous point. Remember, offenses will come. It's coming because you're trying to be a faithful follower of God. It is because Satan is hes going around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he, these lies are being propagated on us on a regular basis. Paul writes this in Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I had somebody come into my office two weeks ago and give me this verse when I was complaining about something. And you know what they said to me? How many, how many of you guys have heard this? God will never give you more than you can handle. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, do you have any idea what the context of that passage talks about? Let me read this again. And we know that all things work together for good. They'll say everything, everything in life works for good. Somebody here who 
who's uh, had a, a loved one die in the last couple of years, tell me how that worked for good for you. I'm going to explain how it works for good here in a minute, but I want you to ask yourself, was that good? Did you find it good when someone passed away and died and you had to deal with the loss of a loved one? How about when you have financial issues? You find good in that? This is one of the most misused verses of all time. You know what this means? Listen to it again. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to His purpose. This is talking about when I'm dealing with offenses, when I'm dealing with trials, when I'm dealing with temptations, when I'm dealing with struggles, a number of these lies that I'm being told on a regular basis. And when I endure through that situation and I endure faithfully, it works towards my salvation. There isn't anything good in a number of things we deal with in life. The good that comes out of those is I made it through that situation faithfully and my salvation is still in intact, right? It's still in a position where I'm still considered a faithful servant. And if I at any point become unfaithful, I can go back and repent of that and again turn back and be faithful again, right? That verse isn't just saying, you know, God, God just gives it to you because you're so faithful. That's not what it's teaching. It's teaching that in any situation, when I'm a faithful follower of God, it all works towards my good, towards my salvation. And guys, one of those lies is, and we again, cause ourselves to believe this is, why am I, as a follower of God, having to deal with suffering? Why am I struggling? Sometimes it's because I'm trying to do it on my own. And sometimes that thought even makes me think God's withholding things from us. Those are, again, the first three lies right there given again. But there's plenty of other lies. Let's look at another one. Money brings happiness. Uh, I fell for this when I was young. How many of you guys fell for this? Do you guys remember your first credit card? <laughs> I still have the receiver in my downstairs theater room that I bought with my first credit card. I still have it. I like it. And it made me happy for a little while until I had to pay for it. Many of us fell for this. Uh, and guys, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with money, and we're not, we're not expected to live as paupers because we are followers of God. Uh, listen to Matthew 4, 8 through 9. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. He says, I'll give you all these things if you will just fall down and worship me. We're looking at monetary things here, right? Greed can cause someone to take their eyes off of God. Listening to Satan's lies will oftentimes full, it will derail us from doing what it is that we're supposed to do. But throughout time, you have had those who really thought money would bring happiness. If you guys don't think that's a, a straight-out lie, look at some of the famous people who have existed uh, and who have uh, committed suicide. When you would have thought they had all things to make them happy, and you found out they were miserable. Go back and look at the number of suicides after the... Uh, stock market crash there right before the Great Depression. There were a lot of people who thought money was the end all and they thought it would bring them happiness. Guys, this has always been a problem and it's always, it's often even been a problem for the follower of God. Listen to Malachi 3 verses 8 through 10. It's been such a problem that you would find those that would actually rob from God. Malachi 3 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, 
Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouses, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Here was his question to his his followers there. Will a man rob God? And the answer was yes. Yep, men are oftentimes so greedy with money, and they want to use that money to bring happiness, and yet at the same time they would even rob God. I'm sure if you go back and, and could speak to somebody uh, living under the law of Moses, that there were people who mumbled at having to give the required sacrifices under the Old Testament law. Just as I'm sure there are Christians today who mumble at uh, giving as they have prospered. Why? Well, they want to use the money on other stuff. They believe money can satisfy, and they certainly don't want to use it on God's behalf. They want to use it for themselves. Now, here's what's interesting to the way they were, the way they were in essence, robbing from God. Here's what God says. Why don't you put me to the test and see that if I am not going to bless you so much that you can't even receive all of these blessings. And his point was that even when we give as we are required to God, that never lessens the abundance that we have. Matter of fact, what he says is, is I'm going to continue to bless you because you're doing what you're supposed to do. And I'm not going to go back and talk about why we, why we give. That, work, that money, for example, is on behalf, uh, the behalf of the work of the church. The Jews also, again, had a purpose for their sacrifices. The system that God has laid out in both dispensations, there was a purpose for why we do what we do. But there were those under the Old Testament law who they were trying to rob God. Let's give him either don't give him the best of the best or don't give as much as we should. And you have the same thing even today under the Christian dispensation. Again, why are people like that? Well, they think money can bring happiness, but they want to use that money to bring their own happiness and maybe not use it on behalf of God. I think, honestly, as, at least for me as I get older, I think many of us who have gotten older, we realize the lie that money brings happiness. Money is a tool like any other tool, and here we are going through this class that John is teaching on Sunday afternoon, and I, I'm glad he's, it's one of those things he pointed out. Money is simply a tool. Like many other tools, it needs to be used wisely, and we are to be good stewards. But guys, money does not fulfill man's deepest desires. Uh, and again, I would say there are many people who are very, very wealthy, who are very, very miserable. So one of the lies that many of us have fallen for is, is that money brings happiness. It doesn't. Let me give you another uh, lie here that is common. It's common both in the church and even outside of the church. And that is that I don't need to repent. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. 2 Corinthians starting in verse 10 of chapter 7. Paul tells the church in Corinth, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Notice that not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Paul here talks about the correct idea of, 
of sorrow and repentance. You know, as Christians, uh, we are going to make mistakes. Every one of us here has, and we will continue to do such. The idea, again, as we become stronger in our faith is to make those, those sins farther and farther apart. Uh, but Paul, he gives us a little bit of knowledge here about dealing with this problem, which affects all people. Let me go back and give you his warnings that he gave to Rome. In Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes both the believer and the non-believer. In Romans 6.23, he says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is sin always going to be a problem? Yes, it will. And because of that, there is the need for repentance. He begins to address that there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But here's the thing. First, we have to be humble enough to repent uh, after we've admitted that we've sinned. Uh, and if we're, not, if we're not able to come to that ability of humbleness, we're going to be destined for an eternity in hell. This goes both for the alien sinner who's never obeyed the gospel, but it also goes for the Christian who has sinned against the will of God, whatever that may be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, sorrow is needed. Now again, that's impossible without a humble heart. Let me, I'll be careful what I say here. I want you to think about our common culture that we live in. And you think about some of these, these sins that are publicly pushed in the society in which we live in. Those sins which are oftentimes pushed by these different groups and promoted, they are not, they are not things that are repented of. They're not things that they sorrow over. Those are things that are flaunted in our face. Why? Well, it would go back to the same, some of the things I just uh, pointed out earlier. One, they think... You know, if I can't live like this, God's withholding something from me. That was the first point. Two, they go back and think, I can trust in my own will. I know how to do it my own way. I can think, I can think what I want to think. Why would God want me to suffer and not be able to be in this relationship? Are you seeing how all these lies continue to work together? In the culture we're in, the majority of them, they flaunt these wicked, sinful lifestyles in front of us. They won't repent over it. They don't have any type of humbleness to admit that it's a sin. If we desire to be saved, we're going to have to go back and sorrow when we sin. That's going to cause people to repent, either one to God or two to God and to the brother or the sister in Christ that they have sinned against. But only if we can change our mindset, which would change our action, is that going to place us in a position where we're in God's will and righteousness. Now, Paul clarifies his teachings when he says, The sorrow of the world worketh death. Well, some do not have this sorrow at all. Others are simply sorry that they either got caught or that, um, you know, if we can just act like we're sorry, um, then people will just leave us alone. But either one of those situations, uh, they're, they're, neither one of those situations will put you in a situation where you're right with God. Paul says this. He says that their godly sorrow made them careful. For those that are living in certain lifestyles, and they say, well, you know, um, I don't think God will hold this against me. Paul makes it clear that when somebody has sinned, that sin leads them to become careful. Careful for what? Well, careful not to do it again. What he means is, is they learned by their mistake. They learned that it's a requirement of God to either do this or to not do this. And because they didn't and they were unfaithful, they've now, they've now learned I am supposed to either do this or not do this, and they don't want to make that mistake again, so they become careful. 
Paul says this godly sorrow cleanses us. Well, it also causes indignation at, uh, at our previous actions. The idea is, is how, does, how does it cleanse us? Well, it causes me to come to a position of repentance. And this isn't in your... Again, which, in which the blood of Christ, 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9, can continue to cleanse me. It's only with repentance that I can be cleansed. It's in this indignation that he talks about here of our sin. That's what leads to repentance. That's what causes me, as he goes on and lists these other things, zeal and having this desire to do right. And so if we as Christians want to be saved, then our understanding this and our willingness to repent, it has to be understood. And again, I go back to the culture in which we live in. Repentance is often rejected because it requires that there is a belief that there's some type of a standard morality. Why does the common culture today refuse to repent at certain actions? Well, the easy answer is this. They don't believe those things are wrong. And because they don't believe those things are wrong, what they're saying to us is, is they don't believe that the Bible is right. They are rejecting the inspired Scriptures. They're rejecting an absolute morality. Uh, Eventually, I guess we're probably going to get banned on YouTube. I try to dance around the skirt. Homosexuality and other sinful lifestyles such as uh, living in adultery and whatever those things may be, that is promoted and propagated to us on a daily basis. And those people do not repent or feel bad at all about those things that they're doing. Why? Because they reject absolute standard morality of the Bible. They reject the Scriptures. Guys, true repentance can only be based on the Word of God. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, notice this, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. If people in our society and or even Christians themselves do not understand that the entire Bible is inspired that it is given for correction and for instruction in righteousness. If they can't understand that and or accept it, they will never repent. Okay? 1 John 3, 4 says this, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Here's the point. When we violate God's Word in any regard, repentance is necessary. Many in the world do not believe repentance is necessary at all because they do not accept absolute morality. There are some in the church who do not think they need to repent because, again, they do not accept absolute morality of the Bible and they reject certain teachings. And so many have come to this conclusion that I don't need to repent. Let's look at one more lie. And other people here may have struggled with this. Forgiveness is impossible. You may have felt that either because you wronged somebody or you may feel like that because you simply wronged God. And this is a common struggle for many. I'm going to go over to 2 Corinthians 2, 7 through 11. I'm going to read this passage to assure you that, one, forgiveness is possible. I can't, I can't and you cannot make someone else forgive you when you have wronged them. You're only responsible for yourself. Paul lets us understand that God will forgive us. And Paul teaches us that we are to forgive others. We could also go back and, and we'll look at, or Jesus wants us to forgive others. But for many, they struggle with the idea of forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7. 
So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him, you're talking about the one there in the congregation who had sinned, and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He oftentimes makes us, uh, Satan wants us to believe in a number of lies. Paul begins to talk about forgiveness. For those that are not familiar with the context, we can, context, we can go back and look there in Corinthians. You had one who, who had committed sin, um, and Paul basically said, what he's doing is so bad the Gentiles wouldn't even do it. And they were to inflict church discipline. And they did. But well, here's what I find funny. He repented of what he had done, and Paul is now telling them, you need to go comfort him because of what he has done. He probably was struggling greatly. One, because he had done it. They brought him to a realization that it was wrong. Uh, two, he had, he had let down his, his brethren. He'd let down God. This guy is struggling greatly with it, and Paul wants them to go and to comfort him. Okay? Refusal to forgive others or even ourselves, is only going to invite bitterness into our hearts. If we are not willing to forgive others, here's what happens. It's going to divide people, certainly whatever, however the relationship is between those people. It's going to kill fellowship between those people and or within the congregation. It's going to kill self-image, one of either the congregation as a whole or maybe even our, our own self-image when we're forgiving or struggling to forgive ourselves. But the road to forgiveness actually begins with going back and remembering how much we have been forgiven. If we can focus, let's go back and just look at John 3.16. If we can focus on John 3.16, that is going to direct everything in the way that either one, I forgive somebody else, or two, on how I might be able to forgive myself. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to die for us as sinners when we were and are as bad as we are. Think about it this way. If you were the only person that lived on this planet, Jesus still would have hung on the cross for you because you needed to have your sins atoned for. Jesus still would have died if it was just one. Now put yourself in that position. If Jesus was willing to do that, and Jesus talks about forgiving others, Paul here is talking about forgiving others, in order for us to reach heaven, not only do we need to be forgiven by God, but we're also told that we have to forgive others. We follow after the example of Christ. Again, Paul goes back and says, you guys need to come back and comfort him. Don't let him be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Listen to Mark 11, 25 through 26. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, 
uh, against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. A lot of people struggle with forgiveness. Forgiveness is one required for a repentant Christian. You must always have already forgiven them in your heart and be ready to reconcile if they place themselves in a position of reconciliation. But at the most, uh, you need to deal with your relationship with God and, and have forgiven them in your heart. For those that are struggling with forgiveness, maybe for something you've done, the Scriptures make it very clear we can be forgiven of anything. Consequences may follow, but we can be forgiven of anything, and part of that is us being able to forgive ourselves. I could have gone back and spent a lot of time looking at a lot of different lies that we fall for as Christians, and these are just a few of them. Uh, he's been using these to destroy souls and destroy congregations and to destroy families since the very beginning of time. Let me go back to them real quick. One, God does not withhold good things from us. And sometimes it feels like it, but He does not. I cannot trust in myself to direct my own steps. People have tried it and people have failed. God's people have and they will continue to suffer in this life. To say that we will not is simply another lie. Money is never going to bring us happiness. There's nothing wrong with money, but money is not going to satisfy our deepest desires. Repentance has always been needed, even though we live in a secular society which believes there's nothing to be repented of and they can live however they want. But again, that's just another lie. And forgiveness is, is possible. For those of us who maybe have done something or lived a lifestyle either before we were Christians or even as Christians and, and realized it and repented of it, allow yourself to quit carrying that baggage around. Because we have a choice. We can believe Satan's lies or, and, and be lost, or we can accept God's truth and be saved. John 8, 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's an awful lot of lies out there, guys, and we're falling for them on a regular basis. God has a plan for our salvation. Here's the question. Do I have the desire to accept it and be faithful and follow it? As I draw this to a close, my concern would be two things. One, either if you're here and you're not a Christian, that you would obey the gospel. Two, if you are here and you are a Christian, that you would be faithful. If you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel, it is this simple. In all the conversion accounts, somebody heard the word of God and they believed. Hebrews 11:6. Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am He, you're going to die in your sins, John 8, 24. So after you have that faith, you need to repent of your sins. Um, as we find over in um, Luke, just start reading in Luke when Jesus says, Nay, I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Sometimes the verses don't stay. But in all, all conversion accounts, they believed in, in Jesus. They knew who He was. They understood the command to repent. Uh, they understood the command to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. They understood the need and command for baptism, uh, Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. They understood the need to remain faithful, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. That's what we find in all the conversion accounts. Very simple process. I know people today teach many different things. Go look it up. Go look how people were saved in the first century. That's how easy it is. And when they did that, they were added to the church, Acts 2, verse 47. If you are here and you're a Christian... When you fall short, when you fall for one of these lies, simply repent of it. Again, go back and be faithful. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9, the blood will continue to cleanse you and keep you righteous. As I draw this to a close, if there's a way we can assist you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.